Well, it's been two weeks since I stood on this platform. We took a little family vacation and was not here last Sunday, so it's great to be back. It was a relaxing time. The beach, the mountains, in-laws, not really in-laws, but sister-in-law. I mean, it was a good time. That was supposed to be kind of a joke. I love my sister-in-law, but she's not watching. Anyway, uh, great time. And then we were back for a very short time. I got in the office. I got some stuff done, some stuff that Maya was waiting for. My secretary was like, where is this piece of paper, Jerome? And I, I got it done. And then I took off again because uh, my daughter is a graduated senior looking at going to school in about 43 days. We just don't know which school yet. We thought we knew the school, but then something happened, and there's these two schools, and I said we should flip a coin, and she doesn't, that wasn't good enough for her. So we were traveling to these two schools to kind of get the, 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 the research and the, the scouting report done, and uh, came home late last night, well, actually early in the evening, and unfortunately, Heather's not, Heather's not here today because she's kind of not feeling well, so she's cuddled up on the couch with a blanket. And uh, she's watching Hallmark, not totally unexpected. What I did not anticipate and what I did not uh, know was going to happen is she's watching Christmas movies on Hallmark. You see, there's this thing called Christmas in July on the Hallmark channel, and I know that my love for Hallmark has been well documented in, uh, since I've been to this church. It's sarcasm, by the way. Uh, and it's one thing to walk in and say, okay, she's watching Christmas movies on Hallmark. It's another thing to say, like, did you really have to make Christmas cookies? There was Christmas cookies made while we were gone out of town. Candy cane cookies, snowman cookies. I eat a snowman cookie, so I can't totally complain about the snowman cookies. You know what? I don't even know if Heather's watching right now. She should be sleeping. Or she should be watching church, but she's probably watching a Hallmark movie. I don't, I don't know. Someone text her and see what she's doing after the sermon. I, was, I, I walked in and I was like, oh, are you kidding me? We're watching a Hallmark movie. So I sat there and I watched a, little, a few minutes with her. Uh, and I decided as I'm sitting there, I, you know, it's not small group season. We just finished our summer small groups. We're about to do fall small groups. But I'm going to create a small group for the next 19 days, just enough till... We are out of the month of July, just for the guys, just for the husbands. We're going to call it Ha, Husbands Against Hallmark. <laughs> We're going to meet every morning for prayer and for emotional support. We'll be united in our shared pain, encouraging one another that football season is just around the corner. And there is hope, once again, for the TV remote to be in our hands. United by that common pain, that common purpose, that common disdain or whatever, or just enduring it. That whole idea of being united in a group is, is really what this message is about. I was looking at this text and I thought, well, I'll be honest with you. I looked at this text and I thought, this is a huge text that we're going to. John chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. This is Jesus at the very end of uh, the upper room discourse, his farewell discourse. He prays what, was, what is known as the priestly prayer or uh, and some would call it the, Lord's, the real Lord's Prayer because it's, or, or the longest prayer. It really is Jesus' longest prayer recorded in Scripture. And he prays for the unity of his disciples. But here's the problem with unity. If you look at Jesus leaving because he's about to be arrested, he's hours away from being arrested, and you think about the unity that he's called us to. Very often we've heard stories and, and sermons and, and encouragements to, to, to be united as Christians, to be the church. And you think to yourself, with all the things that I've seen or experienced was this a prayer of Jesus that did not get answered? 
Think about the various denominations we have, but yet he, he prays for us to be united. Think about the horror stories that you may have heard of of church splits over personalities or business meetings that, are, that become ugly because of preferences. <laughs> Unity in the church seems to be something that people can preach, like pep talk sermons about over and over again because, let's be honest, I'm hard to live with. And some of you are not as easy to live with either. Don't point. But you're thinking about it already anyway. Jesus prays for unity for his disciples. Actually, he prays for three different things in this passage, and we're going to see those three different things, but I honestly... Can I be honest with you? I looked at this passage, and I looked at this text, and I thought, is this three weeks' worth of sermons, or is this one sermon? Am I going to do all of chapter 17 in one sermon, or are we going to do it in, like, three weeks? And I landed on once. We're going to do one sermon in all of chapter 17, because he prays three different prayers, but they all build to where he prays for us. Yes, us. Not just disciples, the 11, but for us, the church today in 2021. So if you turn to John chapter 17, just a little background, we are in a series called The Book of Glory. It's Jesus uh, preparing his disciples for his departure. He knows he's, to, he's returning to the Father. He knows he's hours away while he's in the upper room. This started back in John 13 to, to being arrested and crucified. Um, so here's his final moments telling the final things to his disciples. He calls them to relationship. That's been a big part of this series, The Book of Glory. He promises the Holy Spirit, another major part of this series over the last few weeks. And we're going to see, once again, those things apply to our text. The book of John, written by the Apostle John in the late first century, probably 89. We're talking decades in 89 or 90 AD, decades after the church has been in existence. So he's looking back and reflecting on the words of Jesus. And he writes this gospel, different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with a, with a distinct purpose. I want you to know Christ and have life in him. It's a very evangel evangelistic text, and you're going to see that in this prayer that John recounts. Read with me John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. You know what? Because it is such a long chapter, it's 26 verses, we're going to read it in sections. One sermon, three parts, one big idea. After saying all these things, what things? All the things he's been saying for the last few chapters— Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you've been with us from the very beginning of the study of the book of John, you'll know that over and over again you've heard the hour had not come, that it, had not, it was not his time yet, the hour had not come, and then there was a shift. Now the hour is here. Jesus recognizes the hour has come. He's hours away, literally, from the cross. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each of you, to each one you have given. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by, competing, by completing the work you gave to me. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and you kept them and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and they know that I come from you, and they believe you sent me. Okay, let's back up. What did we just read? First of all, Jesus prays for himself, and he asks twice in this prayer to be glorified. 
First of all, in verse 1, he prays that he would be glorified on the cross. That's what he means by the hour has come. He knows what it's, what's about to happen. He's saying, may I be glorified on the cross. Now, you and I think of glory as something different, but it's in the midst of the humiliation of the cross that he's recognizing that he will be glorified and that through that, the Father would be glorified. Dying on the cross is definitely not what we think of glory, but it's what Jesus points to as glory. This is not a selfish prayer. Once again, the Father is glorified as he is on the cross. Verse 1, he says, I want to give the glory back to you. If you glorify me, the glory goes back to the Father. Verse 4, we see by completing the work that you gave me that the Father is glorified. What is that work? It's giving eternal life. That's verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, he gives, he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And that's Jesus talking about himself in the third person, kind of Mr. T-esque, I understand. But that's what he's doing. Jesus is saying, he, as in myself, not myself, but himself, gives eternal life. What is eternal life? You're like, this is a trick question. <laughs> That's why I'm going to sit here and be quiet. Is eternal life living forever, right? That's what most of us would say. That's what I would say if someone just caught me in the street and said, what's eternal life? Well, you live forever. But you know what? Everyone lives forever. Everyone lives forever. It just depends where you're going to live. Eternal life defined by Jesus in this text is to know the one true God this is verse 3. And Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Now, if, depending on your translation of the Bible, um, I read out of the New Living Translation. I think it's easier to preach from. But it says the way to eternal life. But really, in the Greek, and you'll see this in more uh, formal equivalent translations like the ESV or the NASB, it says, this is eternal life, to know you, to have a quality of existence that's based on knowing the Father and the Son. And, and how do we know the Father? Well, we know the Father because of the Son, Remember back in John chapter 14 when he's talking to his disciples and he's talking about I am the way and they said just show us the father that was Philip. Just show us the father then we're going to believe. And he goes yeah. do you still need to see the father? You've seen me. You've seen the father. Which has been a theme throughout the book of John, right? The father and I are one. John chapter 10 verse 30. Let this be the first clue to the big idea of this text. That there is unity between the father and the son. Not a new thing that we haven't seen before in the book of John, but for this passage in particular, for this text, that's clue number one, the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. And then in verse five, he prays the second time to be glorified, but he's praying this time for his creative glory. See, before he came to earth and dies on the cross, he was not the redeemer, he was the creator. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see, the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. And then the author of Hebrews says this, The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the, ministry, by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed them from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Return to my glory. Essentially, I have finished what I've come to do, or I'm about to complete what I've come to do hours away at the cross. He, he, he knows this is the end. And that's what he says in verse 6 through 8. He, he begins to talk about the disciples in verses 6 through 8, but he's not yet praying for the disciples. He's about to. 
starting in verse 9. But here he's just speaking about his task. For I have passed on to them, the disciples, the message that you gave me. This is verse 8. They accepted, and they know that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. Let me return to glory. Let me return to where I was prior to, to coming. Now, this is kind of like the mission report, right? Like, it, it's time for me to leave, Lord. I've done what you've called me to do. We're about to accomplish the, the final thing on the cross, the resurrection. May, we be, may I be glorified. May I return to glory. And we see this, this idea of Jesus being glorified and the Father being glorified and him returning to his glory that he was previously at. In, in Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, there, this is chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God elevated him, speaking of Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, Jesus' prayer has been answered, right? We see that. His lordship was revealed on the cross. One big clue that we saw in there the unity between the Father and Son. Don't forget that. Hold on to that. And we're going to keep reading. John chapter 17, starting in verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given, me, you've given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scripture foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word and the world, the world, hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them as they can be made holy by your truth. So Jesus turns his attention to praying for the disciples. He knows he's leaving them, and he knows the world would oppose them. We heard him tell that to the disciples just a few chapters ago in the end of John chapter 15. What does he pray for for his disciples? Now, when I say disciples, specifically in this text, he's speaking of the 11. He prays, first of all, that God would protect him in verse 11, that the Father would give them protection. So that why, why is he giving them protection? Look at verse 11. Why is he praying for protection for his disciples? So they will be united just as we are, Father and the Son, the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. I want you to protect them so that they will be united just like we are. That's your second clue about where this big idea is going. Then verses 13 through 14, he speaks about the world hating them because what? He's given them your word. He said, I've given them your word and I've given them my joy. Joy for the disciple is not rooted in circumstances, although 
if we're honest with ourselves, we can say that as a disciple of Jesus, oftentimes our joy is rooted in circumstances. It shouldn't be. But I think what we think of joy sometimes is really happiness, happiness, and happiness is rooted in happenstance. But joy is a sense of well-being that the world cannot take away because the world did not give it to you. Let me say that again. Because in my mind, I imagined like people hollering and shouting hallelujah there. Joy is a sense of well-being that the world cannot take away because the world did not give it. And that's another sermon altogether. I don't want to sidetrack from this, but I really feel it's important to say if the headlines of the world and your social media feed is stealing your joy, then that joy wasn't the joy that the Lord gave you. Where are you getting your joy? I got the, I like that too. You can stand up and shout amen, or you can go, oh, that's, I take that too. Verses 15 through 16, he talks about the world. He says, um, I pray that you'll keep them in the midst of living in this world. It's important to note here that for centuries, Christians would, would look at the dangers of the world and say, well, we ought to isolate ourselves. Keep as far away from the world as we can. Put up walls around our family in our home and keep the world out. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, protect them in the midst of the world. He's not calling his disciples to isolation. He's calling them to infiltration into the world. They are in the world, but we know they're not of the world because the world hates them because they are not of the world. Verse 17, now, Depending on the translation you're reading, it'll say something like, sanctify them, or make them holy, is what I read in the New Living Translation. What does that mean, to sanctify or to make holy? Oftentimes, we commonly use it as the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ. So we, are, we, are, we kind of unofficially define it as becoming better. But is it really becoming better? Sanctification actually means set apart, holy, set apart for an intended purpose. So you are currently sanctifying the seats you're sitting in. You're setting those, we set those apart and you're using it for its intended purpose. You, got, you sanctified your car when you drove it to church, using it for its purpose. You didn't make your car better. You might make the seats better by sitting there because it's better to look at you than empty seats. But I'm just saying, that's what, that's what he's saying. God, would you use them for their intended purpose? What are we intended for? What is our intended purpose? What would he be meaning when he says, sanctify these disciples? They're intended to be the instrument of his work, to manifest God's character, to spread the message of the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus. Jesus is praying for his disciples to fulfill their purpose, for God to use them for their intended purpose. And in verse 18, he models it. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them. And then in verse 19, he says, I'm laying down my life that they may be made holy, sanctified. Same, same Greek root word that you see in verse 17 and 19, sanctified, made holy, set apart for their intended purpose and use. Now, once again, remember, that was the 11, the 11, that was the disciples. 
Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. Then we come to verse 20. And the first thing he says is, I'm not only praying this for my disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So now take another look at what we just looked at and said, oh, that's for us too. That we would be set apart for the purpose that God has called us to, for the reason why we exist. That we would be in the world, protected by him, which we'll talk about as we close. Let's read chapter 17, starting in verse 20. This is the third part of his prayer. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his, specifically his 11, but not exclusively his 11. And now he's praying for all these disciples that will ever believe in the, the message shared by these original 11. I am praying not for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. Is that the third time we've seen that? Just as you and I will be one. Now, let's, let's stop and just a reminder that this third part of this prayer is specifically about us, all Christians through all centuries, who believe because of the message of the disciples, the message of the apostles. That's why we're here. He's praying for us. He's thinking of us. I like, there's also, it's, it's, it's awesome to read the Bible and be like, Jesus is you know, revealing who he is and what it means to follow him, and we follow the example of those who followed him. But he's actually t- talking about us in this room. Let me keep reading. Back to verse 21. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Once again, we've seen this all throughout the Upper Room Discourse and throughout the book of John. And you're like, okay, well, that's the Trinity, and I can't explain that. That's why they're connected like that. But let's keep going. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, I don't want to re-preach old sermons, but weren't we just talking the last time I was on this, on this platform about the advocate? Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, and it's better that I leave because the advocate won't come until I leave the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He's saying, I'm leaving, but abide in me. This is all that same language. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world, let me read that slower because my wife is home watching online, texting me, slow down. I don't want you to miss this. My phone's there, but I could just feel it. That's why I don't have an Apple Watch because then it would, I probably should get one of those. Probably be more effective than her holding up a sign. All right. Let me read this again. Verse 22. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want them whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these, these disciples know you sent me. I revealed you to them and I'll continue to do so then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Throughout this message, we've seen this idea of the unity that exists between the Father and the Son, but now the language kind of shifts to a unity that exists between the Father and the Son and his church. 
He's in the Father, the Father's in him, but the, the Son is in us. The Father and the Son share life, and believers at the same time share that life via the life of the Son in us. See, we started this message talking about unity, and I, I mentioned, you know, we're united against Hallmark, and, you know, we're going to encourage each other, we're united to get the remote back, blah, blah, blah. I was, you know. And I said, was Jesus' prayer for unity of his disciples, was it not answered? No, it was absolutely answered. Because it's a unity that's not defined by agreeing with each other or looking like each other or even getting along the way we like to define getting along. No, this unity is, is different. See, Christians are united because we share the same inward life. We are in Christ, and he is in us. Let me say that again. Christians are united because we share the same inward life with one another. We talk about Christ in us, and oftentimes we, we're so individualistic in American culture that we think about, yeah, Christ is in me. And we all the implications of that. But we don't treat each other like Christ is in you and in you and in you, Right? Christ is in me. There is a crisis in us, plural, that exists here. Christian unity is not based on agreeing with each other, being the same, because uniformity is not unity. And, and can I say, God is not bothered by the diversity that exists amongst Christian denominations. I, don't, I, I know people are like, oh, what a shame. We can't get along on Sunday morning. Look at creation. You think God's like against diversity? God's not bothered by that. He's not bothered by the differences in expressions of worship. or, or he, He's saying the unity comes from I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in you. The things that we've seen throughout this upper room discourse, the abiding relationship that exists that we each and collectively have with Jesus via the Holy Spirit. He's not bothered by the differences, because the unity doesn't come with being uniform. The unity comes with our relationship with him. Although I will say that we may have attitudes about one another that he is bothered by, but once again, that's another sermon. Have you ever been on a missions trip or gone to another place or just met a stranger and you find out that they're a Christian just in the course of conversation? You know that like automatic like kinship you feel to that person? Like, wow, you're a brother and sister. Different backgrounds, different culture, different race, whatever it is. Different ideas theologically, doctrinally. You can't get too different. There's, there's just, anyways, on the fringe things. But there's a kinship. There's a brotherhood and a sisterhood that exists. That's why the old timers, and I realize when I say old timers, I might be sounding offensive, um, used to call each other brother and sister. And we don't do that because it's not cool anymore. But guess what? It teaches something and it reinforces a truth. So from now on, you will refer to me as brother. No, you won't. I'm just kidding. But you could call Heather, Sister Heather, and that would be really fun for me to watch. We share the same inward life. Christ is in us, plurally. Boy, that really changes how you see one another. That really changes how you see that great extra grace required person that you put up with when Christ is in them, doesn't it? Suddenly, the call to keep the unity that exists is a call not to just produce 
unity, but to preserve what it is that God has already done. It's not on you to create, but it's on you to, to keep it. it it's, it's less pep talky, like, come on, get along, be nice. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard about unity in the church, and it's all about be nice. Just be nice. Based in what? Here's some theological understanding. He is the vine, and we are the branches. What is the purpose of this unity? Look at verse 21. So that the world will believe. Look at verse 23. That they may experience such perfect unity that the world would know. The purpose of Christian unity, this thing with him being in us and us in him, the shared inward life, is not so we could be like best friends and sing kumbaya, but it's, it's mission-oriented. And so the world would believe. And so if you look at it from that perspective, this, answer, this prayer by Jesus has been answered. The disciples, both then and now, for 2,000 years of history, have shared an inner life and have spread and continue to spread the message of Jesus. We are sanctified, set apart for the purpose he created us to be and to do. Christians are united because we share the same inward life. We are in Christ and he is in us. What an important message for his disciples as he's about to depart. So here's what I want you to do, a couple takeaways. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I want you to consider the message of just verse 3. I understand I spoke to Christians the whole time. And maybe I piqued your interest when I said, you know, Christians, we don't always get along, and maybe God didn't answer this problem. You're like, ha-ha, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. Because you said it. There's not unity. But there is. What I want you to focus on. Christians, we have our own issues to deal with. Let us do that. But if you're not a Christian today, verse 3 says it. Let me read you verse 3. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And that's the message of Jesus. That's the gospel we call the good news, that we were born into sin, separated from God. Jesus, God's son, as John says, the Logos, the God of creation, takes on flesh, lives amongst his creation. Then he becomes the redeemer by dying a death that our sins deserve, that we it was meant for us. He takes our place. He's a substitute. He lives a life we could not live. He dies a death we deserve. And we put our trust in him and call on him. That's what you must do to be saved. Different traditions have different things. I'm convinced that usually when we pray a prayer or we come forward to an altar call or whatever it is, there's something that switches in our heart and our mind before we even stand up or raise our hand or pray a prayer. I call it just crossing the line. Crossing that line of faith. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And he's done what he's, what he's done, what the, what the scripture says he's done. Maybe today's the day you cross the line of faith. Well, we, we're going to close. I'm going to ask the elders are actually probably busy because we have a lunch thing. 
see a couple of them. They were up here praying earlier. I'm going to ask them to come up again, which I don't always do with our prayer team. And they're here to pray with you as we close out. It's not the easiest time to close out because we're all hugging each other and high-fiving each other and whatever we do after church. But I want you to be able to respond if indeed you say, I would cross that line of faith. Second thing, for Christians, which is probably the majority of us, right? You know a sermon wasn't going get, to get, get past us with this upper room discourse if I didn't say the word abide and be full of the Spirit. That's what the upper room discourse has been all about, this relationship with Jesus. Listen to what, what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 when he sends his disciples out into the world. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But be aware, for you will be handed over to the courts, and, and you will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings before you are my followers, or because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell. This will be your opportunity to tell. The rulers and the unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. That's another sermon altogether. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Abide in Christ. Be full of the Spirit. It makes no sense for a shepherd to send his sheep amongst wolves. Because what? Wolves kill sheep. Likewise, the world is a dangerous place, and we need to respect that recognize we have a safeguard in the provision of the good shepherd Jesus that he is with us and he is in us abiding in Christ the advocate who he sends this is what enables Christians to be in the world and not of the world this is what enables us to infiltrate and not isolate to actually befriend set apart for the mission that we're called to to point people to Jesus third for the Christians once again walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called and I stole that from Paul Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the unity in the body of Christ let me read this to you because here's normally where we start when we talk about Christian unity is the do this put up with each other be nice we start with the pep talky thing but now that we've laid somewhat of a foundation of Christian unity is because we share the same inner life, we can go to this text. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the call to humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love is not a dig down deep and find it inside yourself. It is no, we are in him and he is in us. We have a shared inner life and therefore we yield to his spirit. We abide in him. His life is lived through us. 
that's good for those of us who, who don't do humility like naturally. Or gentleness doesn't come easy. It's not on you. It's on you yielding to the life of Christ in you. Christ in us, plural. I've already mentioned that many unity passages or messages are kind of like pep talks of do better and try harder. But here we're just saying, Lord, would you have your way in me? Would you live your life through me? We're not charged to create unity. We're simply charged to keep it. It's about Christ in us, the shared inner life. To keep it things, to keep it free from things that we often use to define unity, agreement, getting along relationally. My favorite church quote is the, the Christian, the, you know, the church is a, a band of natural born enemies who love each other for Christ's sake. Absolute favorite quote. We shouldn't be surprised and rocked uh, like disillusioned when we don't get along. Congratulations, you're human. And you're a recovering sinner. <laughs> May we keep it about the mission tell the world about Jesus. I'm going to close with a story. And just, uh, I was a youth pastor for many, many years before I became the, the lead pastor here at Radiance. And we would load up 50, 70 kids in uh, coach buses and drive to Indian reservations in Arizona, New Mexico, or the south side of Chicago. Not an Indian reservation, just another location. <laughs> you didn't know about that. <laughs> Anyways. We would just drive to different places and do, like, missions trips. And these kids roll up their sleeves and they would work hard and they would love Jesus and they loved one another. They were on mission together and it was beautiful because they were on mission together. And they grew close to each other. You've been on mission trips, some of you. You know, like there's a bond between us. But then we would say, let's clean up. Job's done. We'd look back on the bus for the long ride home and they're like, stop touching me. So go sit over there. So and so broke up with me. I mean, it became like this big drama thing which happens with teenagers, I understand. It happens with us too, but we're like more sophisticated about it. My point in telling you that story is this. The, there's something about being on mission together. And the moment you say mission's done, then we have all a bunch of time to just kind of look at each other and pick at each other, bicker, and lobby for our preferences and, and what we want. Christ brings not so we can just feel good about one another but so we can accomplish the mission he's called us to to share the gospel with a world that needs hope let me pray and then we're going to receive our offering and we're going to sing a song Father we thank you what a privilege we have to gather together to look at your word to, to hear <laughs> in this passage in particular son Jesus Christ while he was amongst his disciples that right before he went to the cross he prayed for us and not us like sort of us but like us those who would believe because of the message of those 11 for all time 2,000 years later it's a call to be united but it's not just a not just a model that we need to follow it's the actual means the father and the son's relationship and our relationship with the, with the father through the son 
more than a model, but it is the very means by which we are united. We thank you for that, Lord. Today as we leave this place, may you speak to us and challenge us, maybe very specifically, about how we need to find alignment with your word. For some of us, that may be faces or names, but for others, with me as we